This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Drilled, a true crime podcast about climate change. You may often wonder why oil companies spend so much money producing feel-good ads unrelated to what the companies actually do. On Drilled's new miniseries, Herb, host Amy Westervelt tells the story of Herb Schmertz, the mobile VP who got the oil guys into the corporate free speech business back in the 1970s. Amy uncovers how Herb's work influenced all this nefarious feel-good messaging from oil companies today, and explores Mobile's role in setting the legal foundation for the expansion of corporate free speech in Supreme Court cases from Bilotti to Citizens United. If you like The Dig Presents, you might also like Drilled. Listen to Drilled wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Dig Presents. It's a really hot summer, you've probably noticed. It's clearer than ever that we need to decarbonize our economy, and fast. With that in mind, people in some states are fighting to make their electricity systems publicly owned, meaning they would have no profit motive and could be governed directly instead of just regulated. One example, the Build Public Renewables Act in New York, which recently passed, will require the state's public power provider to generate all of its electricity from carbon-free energy by 2030, helping the state meet its climate targets. But there's one public power project in the U.S. that's been around for a while. The Tennessee Valley Authority, which is almost 100 years old. Reporter Darna Noor has this story about the TVA, past and present, good and bad, and what lessons we can learn from it. Before we get this story started, though, there are a few basic models for funding a podcast. You can paywall episodes. You can sell ads to deep-pocketed internet mattress companies. Or, at least till recently, you could get a bunch of money from investors who thought that podcast audiences would grow exponentially and make everyone loads and loads of money. Those profit-hungry optimists turned out to be wrong. Fortunately, the dig funds itself primarily through voluntary listener donations. If you're a fan of what we do here at The Dig, please take a moment to become a contributor now at patreon.com slash the dig. We're proud that we created this unusual listener-funded model that does not require paywalls because we want everyone to be able to listen to the pod regardless of your ability to pay. But that only works because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. If that's you and you haven't contributed yet, please do so now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Darna. Pearl Walker lives in a red brick house in South Memphis. She loves the area. It's quiet, full of families, and she grew up nearby. But there's one part of it she doesn't like. The smell, when you go to certain areas, there's a smell. A smell. Pearl noticed it even when she was growing up. This certain area of the part of the city, there's a smell from a factory or from chemicals. And, and just the, the smell in the air from, you know, chemical things. Pearl has spent most of her adult life working as a cosmetologist, specializing in natural hair for Black women, but she's also an activist. She calls herself the town crier, someone who raises hell, just like one of her heroes, a fellow Memphian. The late Ida B. Wells, 
she is my girl. So, um, you know, what would I to do? So, yeah, I think about that sometimes about what would I to do. For the past few years for Pearl, that's meant speaking up a lot about pollution. South Memphis, Pearl's home, is one of the most polluted areas in America. There's pollution from oil and gas refineries and trash dumps and rail yards. And until recently, a lot of it came from one other place, the Allen Fossil Plant. It was a coal-fired power plant that fueled the city of Memphis for decades, while also spewing toxic lead and mercury into the air. In 2011, regulators found the Allen Fossil Plant's pollution violated the Clean Air Act. And in 2018, it got shut down. Pearl thought that was a good thing, but then she started noticing something new. And so the coal ash trucks started rolling. Coal ash trucks. Coal ash is a toxic waste product that the plant produced for decades. While the plant was in operation, the ash had been stored in these giant pits. But tests showed that the pits were leaking, sparking concerns that Memphis's water supply could be contaminated. We do have our aquifer to be concerned about. Memphis is the largest community in the United States that relies on an underground source for its drinking water. The ash had to be moved. So in 2022, red trucks started rolling down the highway right next to Pearl's neighborhood, creating a new problem. With the trucks traveling on the interstate, they, they still interact with some residential communities. And the exit that they take to get off to go to the landfill, that exit, that's about six blocks from my house. Every weekday, workers load up the trucks with ash and drive them almost 20 miles to a landfill. And they have a lot of the toxic ash to transport. It's enough coal ash to, it's three, I think it's three million cubic tons, enough to fill three Empire State buildings or 21 football fields. You know, I'm like, so if a truck is in an accident, and the truck is compromised and there is a coal ash spill, who do you call? And I don't think I'm being extreme. I mean, vehicles have accidents on the road every day, all day in these United States of America. So a car accident, the car accidents all the time. The trucks are scheduled to make those trips five days a week for the rest of the decade. As a climate journalist, I write about pollution all the time. But something about Pearl's story really stood out to me. Often, it's private companies that pollute neighborhoods. But in this case, the polluter that Pearl is up against is the largest public power project in the US. I've heard of TBA for many, many years since I was a young person. But just that name, TBA, it's just been around forever, even right. before I knew what it was. The Tennessee Valley Authority, or the TVA. It's sometimes thought of as the United States' biggest experiment with socialism. This is Pete Seeger's song about it. It was down in the valley that's called Tennessee. 
Uncle Sam started something in the year 33. You know, it was part of Roosevelt's New Deal. They revolutionized living in the in the Tennessee Valley in their coverage area. Democracy's future when we built TVA. The Tennessee Valley is the drainage basin of the Tennessee River, and it stretches from southwestern Kentucky down to Alabama and from northeast Mississippi over to the Blue Ridge Mountains. During the Great Depression, the region was hit harder than almost anywhere else in the U.S. Residents were already dealing with floods and erosion, especially because the valley had been farmed and logged so hard for so many years. And even though the cities in the region were wired with electricity, rural areas were stuck in the past, which made life even rougher. In 1932, in the midst of the Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt got elected, and he made a plan to help the region recover by harnessing the power of the public sector. hand in hand a broad plan for the permanent improvement of the vast area included in the whole of the Tennessee Valley. It will add to the comfort and to the happiness of hundreds of thousands of people, and the incident benefits will reach the entire nation. When it was created in 1933, the Tennessee Valley Authority wasn't just focused on electrification. It was responsible for agriculture, river and flood management, and creating public jobs. But it also aimed to bring affordable, reliable energy to a part of the U.S. where not everyone had it a place that private capital was leaving behind. To do so, it hired its own workers to undertake huge energy infrastructure projects. The agency's slogan was electricity for all. By 1934, just one year in, the TVA had hired more than 9,000 people, built 16 hydroelectric dams, and sold their electricity to people across the region. I think it was a big, beautiful project. I mean, when you think of energy and getting access to electricity for the first time, it's just a family being able to have lights in their home from the flip of a switch and going from ice boxes to refrigerators. It was just so much bigger than that. It just revolutionized everything and people having access to to clean water and then changing the impact that it had on farming and agriculture and manufacturing and just, it, it did literally just revolutionize the way people were living their lives. That's how I've always thought about the TVA too, as something revolutionary, one of the best things our country ever did. When I pitched this story, I originally planned to do an oral history of the TVA about how it's a model for socialist power. But then I talked to Pearl. It was a really big deal and and they still are a big deal. But over time, as energy became this, this, this big money making commodity, you know, things, it just, it just changed. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which publishes loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. All Haymarket titles are currently 40% off as part of Haymarket's Summer of Struggle sale. 
Browse more than a thousand Haymarket books from authors including Angela Davis, Arundhati Roy, Kianga Yamada Taylor, Eve Ewing, Aja Monet, Maryam Kaba, Naomi Klein, Rebecca Solnit, Olufemi Taiwo, Muhammad Al Kurd, Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Mike Davis, Mark Lamont Hill, Astra Taylor, and many more. All 40% off till the end of August. Head over to haymarketbooks.org to browse Haymarket's full catalog and help ensure the future of radical publishing by making a purchase today. Pearl never thought much about the TVA until she met a woman named Sandra Upchurch at the hair salon. This was probably around 2017 or 18. And at that time, Sandra worked for SACE, Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. SACE. It was a local group doing environmental justice organizing. And so she would come and get her hair done and we'd have these conversations and she'd be talking about this energy work and just different things we'd be talking about and stuff I was involved in. They talked about pollution facing their communities. She was able to gather that I, you know, was, you know, active in the community. And then SACE held an environmental justice conference here. And she asked me to be a part of that. Sandra pulled Pearl into the fold. Pearl went to the conference and started helping SACE out with the work they were doing, researching environmental hazards and telling other community members about what was going on. And through that process, she learned about other things, too like rising energy bills in Memphis, one of the poorest cities in America, a lack of investment in renewable power sources, and crumbling infrastructure that seemed to be getting worse in Pearl's neighborhood. Every time it rains here, thousands of people lose power because we need the infrastructure upgrades. The city of Memphis has been getting its power from the TVA since those early founding years. But for Pearl, the more she learned the more she started to question that. She gave me this metaphor. Our relationship with TVA, it's kind of like an abusive relationship. It's like if this man, you know, he's beating this woman, but he says, I love you, and he's taking care of her and the children. He's doing things for her, but he's still beating the crap out of her. And that's how I feel about our relationship with TVA. It's like an, it's like an abusive relationship. Like, take the situation with those coal ash trucks in Pearl's neighborhood. Pearl learned that TVA had proposed two different locations for dumping the ash. One was more rural. But they decided on the one near her neighborhood, the urban one, without even asking Memphis's city council. Sace later found out that TVA kept that decision secret from the public for six months after they made it. But it was such a slap in the face because you simultaneously want us to renew your contract, but you're dumping coal ash in our city without our permission. That's, that's how I look at it. You know, you, you want a new contract, but you're putting coal ash in our community. Pearl and Sace were so fed up with TVA that they thought Memphis should actually consider cutting ties with it completely and getting its power from somewhere else. And the city had a real opportunity to do that. Back in 2019, TVA offered municipalities 20-year, automatically renewing contracts. But Memphis refused and chose to stay on a five-year contract instead. 
And the city also started exploring what it would mean to get its power from somewhere other than TVA. SACE supported them. But TVA kept offering up the 20-year contract. City officials started weighing it as a possibility, even as they kept looking at other options for where to get electricity. In summer 2022, Memphis City Council and the city's utility held a meeting at the public library to consider where to get its energy, TVA or somewhere else. Pearl was there, and she said the meeting was totally biased towards TVA. The presentation was so one-sided, and it emphasized the benefits of staying with TVA, but he didn't talk about the, the, the shortcomings of staying with TVA also, there were unanswered questions, still unanswered questions. You know, the public doesn't know, the public doesn't know what to ask, you know, and, and that's why we are right now. To Pearl, it seemed like the city's contract with TVA was causing problems, but the people in charge of that contract weren't listening to the residents they served. And because the contracts were getting renewed over and over, they had no incentive to listen. Despite that, that fall, the utility said it seemed like sticking with TVA was a good idea, though it didn't say how long its contract would last. When I talked to Pearl, everything she said about what she saw in her community, about how little she felt heard by the city and by TVA, it all made sense. But I still didn't understand the bigger picture, how TVA ended up here with engaged citizens like Pearl rallying against it. I believe we should have control over our economic destinies. And electricity is a really key service. It, it powers and sustains modern life. And we as members of a representative democracy should have say in the rates we pay for power, the, the types of generation assets that our utility invests in, and of course, importantly, how we go about containing climate change and decarbonizing our economy. That's Sandeep Vahisen. He's writing a book about publicly owned energy called Democracy in Power. He believes in public power, but he says the TVA hasn't always been a bastion of egalitarianism or democracy exactly. Uh, so TVA very much upheld and affirmed the Jim Crow racial hierarchy that prevailed in the South at the time. Uh, that, that was true in hiring. Uh, that was also true in a model town that TVA built uh, near Knoxville called Norris, Tennessee. That was a whites-only town. In the 30s, TVA used eminent domain to take over farmland without offering much support to the black farmers who were displaced. And in many cases, you know, TVA embodied high technocracy. They were building dams without any real concern for the people who would be displaced, uh, not necessarily providing them adequate compensation or resettlement options. And then there's this. When the TVA's first ever board members, including David Lilienthal, who's often called the father of public power, set up public utility systems in cities like Memphis, they said from the outset that they should be controlled by appointed boards, not elected ones. They were afraid of politicizing local utility decisions, uh, which is interesting when they're talking about all this grassroots democracy on one hand and then saying, uh, we're a little bit wary of democracy. We need, we need appointed people in charge of these utilities. Sandeep said they had good reasons for making that decision. Private power hated the TVA and sought to um, 
really kill it in the cradle, um, both through legislative efforts and through the courts, of course. And so I think Lilienthal adopted this view that he needed to be ruthless to get things done, otherwise the TVA simply wouldn't survive. So I think as a result, the TVA took some shortcuts, made some expedient decisions that look really bad in hindsight. Uh, but at the time, the TVA was facing very powerful enemies. Republicans in Congress became more hesitant to give TVA money to build out power, and the threats to TVA ramped up a lot when President Eisenhower got elected. Communism, according to all its own leaders, must be a system of international control and conformity. Thus, at its very heart, it is the complete opposite and enemy of any kind of nationalism. The Eisenhower administration, which was the first Republican administration in more than, in almost 20 years, took office in 1953 and put a target on the back of TVA and public power more generally. They thought public power was competing unfairly against private power, was wasting taxpayer money, and involved what they viewed as the excesses of the New Deal and the Roosevelt and Truman administrations. This was during the heyday of McCarthyism, and Eisenhower even called the TVA creeping socialism. Republicans hatched a plan to start letting private power companies compete with the TVA in the Tennessee Valley for the first time since the 30s. But the TVA was able to strike a deal. In 1959, Congress and the agency reached a compromise. So what Congress did was Congress established a so-called territorial fence, outside of which TVA could not serve any customers. The TVA would stay alive, but it couldn't expand. Also, Congress basically gave TVA control of its own purse strings. Instead of getting congressional approval for projects, TVA could issue its own bonds to pay for stuff and pay them off with its own revenue. It shielded the entity from naysayers in Congress. But Sandeep said it also made its power even more concentrated, even less responsive to the public it was serving. TVA not only had an independent board with a great deal of discretion, now they didn't even have to go to Congress to raise money for their power projects. This general trend, the TVA slowly getting weakened and insulated over time, continued for decades. By 2005, TVA had altered its leadership to resemble that of private utilities. That meant the board, already appointed, not elected, transitioned from full-time to part-time and lost control of day-to-day -day operations. And it got a CEO. So from the very early days of the TVA, it was helping set up these institutions that it viewed as exemplars of grassroots democracy, but at the same time instituting policies that thwarted democracy at the local level. You know, TVA has been extraordinarily successful in a number of ways. I don't want to detract from that. But it's never lived up to the billing of grassroots democracy. Uh, grassroots democracy is really a, a propaganda term rather than a, an honest descriptive term of TVA's record. That's the version of TVA that Pearl Walker got to know. It felt like a behemoth that didn't have any accountability to the public. For her, the TVA was coal ash trucks rolling by her neighborhood, meetings at the library where no one seemed to be listening, decisions made and then kept from the public for months. It wasn't the first time that the Tennessee Valley Authority had faced criticism for how it deals with coal ash. Back in 2008, 
a coal ash pond ruptured at another plant in Tennessee. Hundreds of workers fell ill after cleaning it up. But would leaving TVA actually fix Memphis's problem with coal ash? It's not like private companies have been so careful with the toxic sludge. Back in 2014, a drain pipe burst at a coal ash pond owned by the private company Duke Energy in North Carolina. No one sealed it for almost a week, and the company is still working to clean it up. And TVA is actually less carbon-intensive than some of its privately-owned neighbors. Reporting this story, I started to get into a bit of a spiral. Here's me talking to myself while doing some research. Okay, so I totally obviously understand the concerns, right, with, um, you know, with the coal ash pollution, but I don't know, man. I mean, the idea that uh, leaving public power behind and going out into, like, the market to get um, power from a competitor or whatever is going to fix this. It's just, like... uh, There's been some, you know, kind of wondering, I guess, about whether or not the TVA is up to the challenge of, um, you know, sort of decarbonizing and and bringing on new new wind and solar and things like this. Um, What do you make of the the idea that um, that it might be time for some municipalities to leave the TVA? (laughs) I certainly understand the temptation, but I think it's it's a dangerous path. Uh, I believe the TVA is a is a good institution, and it can certainly be redeemed and made more publicly accountable. And exit is a way of accelerating the growth of private power. Sandeep says abandoning the TVA might seem enticing in the short term, but right now, in practice, that could mean conceding power to companies that have no obligation, not even a nominal one, to the public. If Memphis did leave the TVA, Rates for other TVA customers could go up. Lots of workers could lose their public jobs. And Sandeep says without Memphis, its biggest customer, the TVA itself might not last. So in the near term, exit might seem appealing. But in the long term, I think large scale exit threatens to unravel the TVA system. And I do worry that frustration with TVA could be uh, could help those who support privatization. But more than the question of whether or not to abandon the TVA, the story made me think about something else. About how even public power, one of our best tools to fight climate change, can still lead to polluted neighborhoods and a warming climate about how projects like TVA can be so vulnerable to capital, to the threat of private takeover, that they can start shutting the public out. About how the country's biggest public utility could lose so much public support. There was another meeting Pearl went to where Jeff Lyash, the CEO of TVA, spoke and took public comments. When Jeff Lyash, when Jeff Lyash spoke, so at the MLGW meetings, they take the public comments first and we step up to a podium 
and I and he wasn't far from me because he was on the first row at the end of the row so he wasn't far from the podium and I said um and I mentioned the coal ash and where I lived and I looked at him directly in his face and I said and I just wanted you to know that they're reckless and irresponsible so they do all this talk about what all what all they're doing for the community and stuff but it's money you made from from charging people you know what i'm saying so it's like it's like i'm baking you a cake with some ingredients that i stole from you In December 2022, Memphis rejected the 20-year contract with the TVA, opting instead for a five-year contract. That gives TVA some time to rebuild its relationship with Memphis and environmental activists. So far, Pearl says they haven't been doing the best job. Back in February, TVA imploded smokestacks at the old Allen Fossil plant. They only gave the community 24 hours notice about the demolition. Pearl was pretty mad. But still, there are some positive signs. In January, six new TVA board members who were appointed by President Biden joined the agency, taking over the Trump-filled board. And the Inflation Reduction Act, passed last year, opened up incentives that could help public entities like TVA build wind and solar, though it remains to be seen how much the agency will actually use them. Meanwhile, Pearl sees the signs of climate change all around Memphis getting worse. Here in Memphis, we, we, we're having three seasons in one week. And then the rivers, what's going on with the rivers, all that is climate change. Oh, I got to give you my definition of climate change. So mankind has made the planet sick. And climate change is Mother Nature throwing up on us. <laughs> <laughs> but um mother nature's gonna keep throwing up on us and there right. are a lot of things that at stake here beyond some damn rates for for some electricity you know we're talking about the environment here for pearl the question of public power isn't a theoretical one it's about her daily life her neighborhood living in the shadow of these big energy decisions. Pearl wants cleaner air, affordable electricity, and people who listen to her. She says she'll support whatever institution can provide all that. Me, Pearl Walker, I guess you could say I'm the squeaky wheel or yeah. I'm the barking dog that gets attention, but I really don't have any power. She's trying to change that. This year, she's running for city council for the second time in Memphis. TVA also recently invited Pearl to be on a focus group to advise them on their energy decisions. She gave them a presentation about environmental justice this year. She doesn't think it'll do much, but she showed up anyway to say her piece. That was Darna Noor. She writes about climate change and fossil fuels for The Guardian. 
You can find her work at theguardian.com. The Dig Presents is produced and edited by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our artwork is by Celia Nagalis. This episode was fact-checked by Alan Dean. Thanks also to the rest of the Dig team. Alex Lewis, Jackson Roach, Tamuz Frankel, Sylvia Atwood, Fierio Francos, and Ben Maybe, And to our partners at Jacobin. We do hope you liked this episode of The Dig Presents. We will publish another documentary story around this time next month. Our big goal with The Dig Presents is to bring Dig-style political analysis to a broader and different audience than regular Dig interviews. Please do share it with people you know who might like it, and on social media. Remember, there is a special Dig Presents feed that just includes these documentary stories. 